the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to today's podcast, sponsored by Hillsdale College. All things Hillsdale at Hillsdale.edu. I encourage you to take advantage of the many free online courses there. And, of course, to listen to the Hillsdale Dialogues, all of them at Q for Hillsdale.com, or just Google Apple, iTunes, and Hillsdale. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt, joined by former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie. Good morning, Governor. Welcome back. Hugh, thanks for having me. The most important issue in America today is what do we say and do about Israel's war in Gaza and the threat from the north from Hezbollah? What do you think of President Biden's policy? Look, I think, as I've said to you before, Hugh, I think generally um, what he did in the immediate aftermath of October 7th was the right thing to do. I think his trip to Israel was the right thing to do. Now, of late, um, I don't like the way he's showing and having Anthony Blinken show as much daylight as he's showing between Israel's efforts and United States support. Um, The fact of the matter is that Hamas executed a horrific terrorist act. They have made very clear publicly that they intend to do it again and again if they're able. And so the Israelis have an obligation to the safety, security of their people and the integrity of their their territory um, to dismantle the Hamas military machine as best they possibly can. And we need to be completely supportive of that effort. Governor, I don't think President Biden has the ability to deliver a clear, concise and inspiring speech about this. It's an upside down Maginot line. It's going to take forever and they're going to have to do an upside down Roman. We made Carthage a desert and called it peace, but it's going to take a while. How long do you think it will take the Israelis to do this? And should we support them every step of the way? Look, I think that the Israelis could probably get you know, it, it depends on how much you want to dismantle it, Hugh. I don't think it's possible to completely eliminate Hamas. I just think that the, the territorial problems make that very, very, very difficult. But I think you could degrade them significantly enough that they're not an immediate threat. And then you have to do better than the Israelis have done, quite frankly, uh, in their intelligence gathering and their execution on that gathering um, in the future. Um, I think this could take another couple of months. um, And I think if that's the time frame, we should be completely supportive. Thank you for that. Again, I like the fact you answer my questions. Here's a here's a hard one. Over the weekend, the National Security Advisor of Israel, who's a very little known but very important guy by the name of Tzachi Hanigbi. I hope I've not butchered that too badly. He (laughs) based. He said that they could no, quote, we can no longer accept the Rodwan force sitting on the border. The Israeli public understands that the situation in the north needs to change, and it will change. If Hezbollah agrees to change it diplomatically, that's good. If not, we will have to act. We will have to ensure that the situation in the north is different. What do you think that means, Governor? I think they're sending a warning shot across Iran and Hezbollah's bow um, and letting them know that the type of activity that they you know, either negligently uh, permitted, uh, as probably the best way to put it, um, uh, from Gaza, uh, will not be permitted uh, in the north. And I think this is a warning shot. This is the, the, the diplomacy um, that you engage in, hard diplomacy, 
to let people know what you're willing to put up with and what you're not willing to put up with. I don't think it means that anything is imminent in terms of action from Israel, because I think Israel knows that they would like to avoid, if possible, um, a two-front war, uh, and they're not going to try to initiate something like that. But in the end, I think they're doing what they need to do, which is to say to Hezbollah, and most importantly, to its state sponsor, Iran, don't try it. If they go full 1967, Governor, ought America to support them? Look, it depends on what the, uh, you know, what the provocation is for that, Hugh. Um, but, again, I don't think there can be any question that we must support Israel um, as long as we believe what Israel is doing is meeting two criteria, protecting the safety and security of its people, necessary to do that, and two, necessary to support its territorial integrity. Governor, uh, last week, I'm sure you saw Elise Stefanik questioning the presidents of Penn, Harvard, and MIT. Thus far, we have a split decision. Penn accepted the resignation of their president. MIT did 100% support of theirs. And Harvard's board is meeting today. What should Harvard do? They should fire their president. Now, Hugh, you remember at the debate in Miami, I was the first one to say this. I said that all those presidents should be fired. And I said it back um, you know, in early November. Um, the, the fact is that this anti-Semitism is a symptom of a greater problem in our higher education system, especially in what's constituted to be the elite colleges and universities in this country. They have been on a hiring spree over the last decade and a half or more of radical people with radical ideas that put their DEI uh, type of uh, function into place. Um, and what it's done is it's infected the entire educational process in these schools. Um, and, and look, I have personal experience on this. Our oldest son went to Princeton University, uh, graduated in 2016. I saw it present back then, Hugh, um, and it's only gotten worse and worse and worse over time. Um, Claudine Gay should be fired. Um, she should have been fired quite some time ago. Um, and MIT is making a huge mistake um, in, in, in maintaining the presidency that they have there. Governor, you know about the two-state solution. I've got the two-secretary solution as a Harvard alum. I've been putting it out there. Bring in Hillary Clinton to run the place for three years and put Mike Pompeo in charge of the search committee and the reform committee at Harvard. Uh, what do you think of my two-secretary solution? <laughs> well, look, um, I, I have absolutely no problem with Mike Pompeo um, leading the search committee. I, I think there are very few people um, who have greater integrity um, than Mike Pompeo, and I think he would bring integrity to the process. As for Secretary Clinton... I don't know if she's really qualified to be a university president and when she would she bring the right type of leadership there? Would she be willing to stand up to the DEI culture um, and the woke culture that's going on in these places? I'm less sold on your one secretary, more sold on your other. Well, it's just a question of the art of the possible. And I, I, you know, I don't know that the board of trustees or the overseers in the corporation are going to bring in a Republican. Governor, let me ask you some some technical questions about personnel. Do you have any idea who would be your chief of staff in the White House? I have a couple of ideas, but I'm certainly not going to spring them on your show, Hugh. Why not? Make some news. Uh, well, it would be news to the people I'm thinking about, too. Huh? So I, <laughs> I think I always said that to talk to them first, don't you? <laughs> well, I, I, what I was, you know, we had these debates before you, the what, debate. Tell, how about this? How about this, Hugh? Because I, 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 I like to answer your questions. Um, I, I would say this. I think you, would, you should consider it very likely um, that my chief of staff would be somebody who either was a governor or currently serves as a governor. Ah, very well put. Good, good, good. I, I think these personnel questions, you know, there are only 3,000 appointments, and we always elect a president and a vice president. 
Do you think we ought to have more clarity on who's coming in with the team? Yes, I do. Um, and I think if that were something that people got a little bit of notice on, let's say before the next set of debates, that there might be a question on the kind of people you would consider, then um, you could have the time to at least give those people a heads up that their name will be thrown out in front of millions of people on national television or millions of people here on the Hugh Hewitt show. But I absolutely think it's important because, look, the guy who can answer that question is Donald Trump. Because 40 of his 44 cabinet-level people have said not only that they wouldn't work for him again, they wouldn't vote for him. And so who's he going to bring in? Is this going to be the Kosh Patels of the world, Um, the Jeffrey Clarks of the world, Um, the Michael Flynn's of the world are going to be the people who are going to populate the next Trump administration, a bunch of deranged sycophants who will just do whatever the masters tells them to do, regardless of the law and the Constitution. Um, I'd answer these questions because I want Trump to answer these questions, because you know what? He's not going to be able to find anybody good to work for him. Do you expect him to come to the debates that are allegedly going to happen before Iowa and New Hampshire? Non-sanctioned RNC debates are now allowed. I don't expect that he'll come to Iowa, um, but I think because he knows he has greater risk in New Hampshire, he might show up at the New Hampshire debates. Uh, Will you do a debate that just has legacy media running it? Because the RNC's backed away. That means legacy media will fill in, and they're not going to bring any Republicans with them. Look, I'll show up at any debate, anytime, anyplace, because... I am self-confident in my ability, as you saw on Wednesday night, to not only answer questions directly, which none of the other candidates on the stage were willing to do. And I think they have to be called out on that, Hugh, because in the end, you you had Ron DeSantis on on Wednesday night who would not answer if he would send troops into Gaza if we had a plan to, to successfully rescue hostages. Wouldn't answer whether he would send troops to Taiwan if China invaded and wouldn't answer whether Donald Trump was fit or unfit to be president of the United States. Now, you know, these debates sometimes are just as instructive for what the candidates won't say as they are for what they will say. And I don't want people to forget the first debate in August, Nikki Haley, Ron DeSantis, and Vivek Ramaswamy, the remaining people on the stage, raised their hands and said they will support Donald Trump even if he's a convicted felon. Now, you know, then why, you know, then why wouldn't Ron DeSantis easily say, that he was fit to be president. He was going to support him, even if he was a convicted felon. So I would go to debate these folks anytime, anyplace, if for no other reason than to act as the fourth moderator and actually embarrass them into answering some questions. You know, Governor, I'm a pretty good lawyer. You're a pretty good lawyer. Uh, three-judge panel, the D.C. Circuit, reworked the gag order on the former president. All three of those, two Obama, one Biden appointee, all got out of committee on a partisan vote. I think this makes our country look really bad, and I think prior restraints are awful. What do you make of the gag order on the former president? The problem, Hugh, is the president's conduct. And, 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 you know, any other criminal defendant would not be permitted to do what he's doing. And you know that. Actually, I don't. I don't know anything about criminal law, but I know the First Amendment. I hate prior restraints. but, But let me say this. When I was U.S. attorney for seven years, if a criminal defendant started ad hominem trying to intimidate potential witnesses, they would be sanctioned. And probably, I think, you know, look, he's getting a break. These other criminal defendants would have their bail revoked and they'd be put in jail. But you see, Governor, that's where it's a sanction after the speech occurs. I have no problem with sanctions, but prior restraints give me the shivers. Well, look, so, so I want to make sure I understand what you mean. 
So you would be fine, given if he was intimidating witnesses, which he has done already. Um, if he was intimidating witnesses, you would be okay with him being jailed. Well, it's an interview, not a debate. But yes, I believe all criminal defendants have to live up to the rules under which they have achieved bail. And if those bail rules are clear and he violates them after it. But prior restraints are anathema to me, Governor. Uh, you know what? This is why it's such an impossible position that this former president has put this country in. Because now we're in a situation where if he were jailed for violating uh, his bail conditions, you know that people would be yelling, screaming, how can you put a former president of the United States in jail prior to his trial? He knows this. So he acts recklessly and violates those things, calling, calling out the judge to dare her or him in the New York case to put him in jail because that's what he wants. Well, if there's one set of rules, that one set of rules is no prior restraint. And I would live with that. Governor, very quickly, you have the best finance chair in the country. I I had lunch with him on Friday. I'm just wondering, are you 100 percent, 100 percent staying in this race through New Hampshire? Absolutely. 100 percent. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-702-5400. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-702-5400. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-702-5400. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Governor Chris Christie, always a pleasure to talk to you. Keep coming back. I appreciate the time. Don't go anywhere, America. I'll be right back on the Hugh Hewitt Show. Hugh Hewitt live inside the Beltway. Good Monday morning. There's a lot of news. There's a lot of news. Some of it very ominous. Uh, And I will get to that in a moment. Very ominous news. I think the war in Israel's war is going to expand to the north, and I'll come to that in a moment. But it's a victory Monday for the Browns fans. And look, Joe Flacco beat the Browns 18 times when he played for the Colts, and the Browns beat him three times. So Browns fans don't like Joe Flacco too much. But now Joe Flacco's a Brown, and he managed to beat the Jaguars yesterday. He's 38 years old. He was on the couch three weeks ago. So this is for all the middle-aged guys out there who, who used to be great athletes. You still are. You just don't get the call from the Browns to come in after. So the Browns won their... Won a game yesterday against the Jaguars. It's their fourth different quarterback that they've won with this year. He's not George Blanda. Now, for those of you who are Steelers fans or young, George Blanda is the oldest quarterback to ever play in a championship game. He lost the AFC championship in 1970. He was 43 years old. So Joe Flacco's not George Blanda. But he looked like George Blanda yesterday. The 1970 season was amazing for George Blanda. But afterwards, they got the old guy... And uh, he, he had a couple of wonderful things to say. So let's go to the old guy, Joe Flacco, in the Browns locker room. Give him, actually, press conference, cut number two. Yeah, it's, it's tough. I'm not a man of very many words um, in terms of, like, you know, well-spoken words. I can sit down at a table and, 
you know, sound like a moron for you, but uh, <laughs> coming up with words about how this feels, I'm not going to do a good job of that. It's There's so many different things that are running through my head. Um, it's unbelievable to be out there. It's it's really unique experience. I can't say enough to have children that are the at, of the age where they understand what's going on, and, and I'm going to remember these things for forever. So I'm, you know, like I said, I, I said it earlier, I'm just trying to stay in the moment and be as grateful as possible and, uh, you know, Keep getting better. Stay in the moment. Be as grateful as possible. He's 38 years old. He's, he's taken a lot of hits. He's won the Super Bowl. So, I mean, he's done the best that you can do in his league. But he gets to play again after he didn't think he was going to get to play again. It's like when they started the senior tour and all these old golfers. Lee Trevino could do a dance. He was back playing competitive golf. People like to do what they're good at. Usually careers end early. Go into radio if you want a long career, right? Become a podcaster if you want a long career because that can go forever until you die. And even after that, we got a preacher who's out there who's still preaching. Um, Jay, what's his name? Generally, some other guys on tape forever. Jay, Jay Vernon, Vernon McGee. McGee. Yeah, Jay Vernon McGee is still alive, still talking somewhere right now. Uh, preached his whole way through the Bible, so he's still with us. Joe Flacco in the locker room was talking to us. They gave him the game ball because he threw for 300 plus yards. He's 38 years old. He was on a couch three weeks ago. He said this, cut number three. Coach is right, man. You know, it's not. It was not pretty today, and I was not my best. But these are what makes teams these tough games. You know, you guys earn the right all year to play December football, and that's what we're doing right now. And that's what it looks like sometimes. I love coach talk. I love locker room talk. It does have its applicability. Now let's get to the serious news. Israel warns it can no longer accept Hezbollah on its border. Now, Matt, I wrote a column about this. It should be in the post tomorrow because I saw it on Saturday. I said what? And I took a look, and I read it again, and I read it the third time. It was in the Times of Israel. Now, it got picked up by the Financial Times and by news items from John Ellis. You have to be somewhat sharp-eyed to pick this up. Zachi Hanagbi is the National Security Advisor for Israel, like my friend Ambassador O'Brien was for Donald Trump. He had a little presser on Saturday, and he said, we can no longer accept the Radwan force sitting on the border. The Israeli public understands that the situation in the North needs to change, and it will change. He was talking to Channel 12 News. If Hezbollah agrees to change it diplomatically, that's good. If not, we will have to act. We will have to ensure that the situation in the North is different. Now, Israel is killing Hamas terrorists, and they're surrendering left and right, and their command and control structure is broken down, and Hamas is going to be removed within a couple of months. They'll be gone. But they're not looking the day after. Uh, the podcast, Dan Senor's podcast, Call Me Back, dropped last night at midnight. And I set the alarm and woke up to listen to it because it's the best. And now it's Haviv Radig Gur from the Times of Israel. Every Monday he talks to Dan Senor. And so I'm going to steal the first three minutes of what Haviv told Dan dropped last night. Go listen to the whole thing. It's a 50-minute conversation. I'll listen to the whole thing later. But I wanted to hear his initial take. Here are the first three minutes from today's Call Me Back podcast, Dan Senor, talking to Haviv Radigur. So before answering the question, a little caveat. For Israel, the day after the war fighting is a secondary priority. It's important, but it nevertheless isn't the priority. This is there. You know, you can fight a war um, to reshape a strategic environment, and then you really need to know how you're going to reshape it. But also you can fight a different kind of war. And that is a war that you perceive to be a war of survival. And, you know, when the United States uh, fought against Imperial Japan and Nazi Germany, 
the day after was important and there were good people thinking about it. And the American answer ultimately created the period of greatest peace and prosperity for the world that the world had ever seen. But nevertheless, the critical priority was ending the existential threat of Imperial Japan and Nazi Germany. Israel believes itself to be not in a war of choice where knowing the outcome is critical, but in fact in an existential war of defense. It sees not just Hamas, it sees all of the Iranian proxies surrounding it as a noose that has developed around it. So that's first of all. The Israelis are thinking about the day after. There's people doing that thinking. But the first priority is removing the existential threat. And now to the actual question you asked. <laughs> the best, um, I think, explication I have heard was Defense Minister Yav Gallant. Gallant uh, gave a talk to some Israeli soldiers, and he said there are three stages to the strategy. The first stage is we topple the Hamas organization, we destroy its military and its governing capabilities. The second is demilitarization of Gaza, which means essentially um, destroying Hamas's infrastructure, Hamas's organizational capacity. Some of that organizational capacity is civilian, some significant part of it. And so either you change the people running that civilian infrastructure or you destroy some of it um, if it's destroyable, um, if it's not you know necessary. That I think includes, I mean, what Gallant said was that that includes creating a situation in Gaza in which, as he put it, there's no threat from Gaza to Israel. And it includes complete freedom of operation. That's a quote from him in Gaza. So that's the demilitarization element. That also includes a counterinsurgency, presumably. After Israel destroys the Hamas regime, there will probably be some significant period of, of insurgency, and that counterinsurgency will be part of that second stage. It will, he said, take longer than the first. And then finally, de-radicalization. De-radicalization is removing Hamas as a political um, force in Gazan politics, in Gazan discourse. This is a stage that, even though Gallant talked about it, it's not at all clear exactly how Israel does that. It's not clear to me, at least, that Israel is capable of doing that, that the outsider coming in is capable of doing that. But in as much as Israel is thinking of the day after, those three stages are the Israeli thinking. And that is, to me, I just want you to know, they're, they're thinking about it. De-radicalization is the hardest. Uh, Israel cannot do that. Jews can't do that for Muslims. There are many moderate Muslim states, and you begin to think about the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia and Bahrain, our allies who may be able to come up with uh, moderate Muslim uh, leadership guides and tell them how to do it. But it's got to be like Morocco. It's got to be like Sudan. They've got to not be sworn to death. Uh, fight to the death. And meanwhile, it sounds like Israel's going to go to war in the north and destroy Hezbollah. And if Iran gets involved, they're going to destroy Iran. And we're in that period of time. You heard it here first. The Wall Street Journal has a poll this morning. Majority of Americans back Israel as Democrats split over a war with Hamas. Now, the polling is not very good because they said they didn't say, who do you favor, Israel or Hamas? They said, who do you favor, Israel or the Palestinians? That's a tricky question. I'd like to see the polling on Israel versus Hamas. I don't think a majority of Democrats favor Hamas. I do think they've got a radical group, very loud, very present on campus. But they are looking at what the pollster said is a Vietnam War situation within the Democratic Party. The Republican Party has an isolationist rump of one to three percent, but not not a radical fringe the way the Democrats have, not a Hamas favoring fringe like Rashida Tlaib. And. They don't have the problem that Harvard and University of Pennsylvania and MIT have of leadership that doesn't know 
moral clarity from moral quandary. By the way, the Penn president resigned over the weekend. The Harvard Board of Overseers and the Harvard Corporation is meeting today in a regularly scheduled meeting. Hopefully, President Gay will be gone by the end of the week, and then Harvard can begin to rebuild. My two secretaries' proposal is still out there. Let Secretary Hillary Clinton run the college for three years. Put Secretary Mike Pompeo, a Harvard Law grad. He was number one at West Point, but not number one at Harvard Law. I misspoke myself last week. Harvard Law grad run the internal investigation and the new presidential selection committee. And they had a lot of great people like Regina Marie Pisa, who's the chairman emeritus at Brooks Gray. They got all sorts of great people. Arthur Brooks, they put them on the, the reform and rehabilitation committee. Let Hillary run it in the meantime. But they've got to make, if they want a reputation for an actual excellence, they've got to tear down the craziness that has developed there at Crimson Land over the last 10 years and start over. On your own front door. You know, it's not looking a lot like Christmas for the Ivy Leagues. It's the opposite of Christmas. I'm busy posting up a story over at X on the meltdown at Harvard. And the meltdown at Harvard is continuing because the board didn't act fast enough. They didn't do what Penn did. Penn got out there ahead of everybody and just fired the president over the weekend before the faculty could get involved. And now I've got 500 faculty members saying, oh, no, we've got to support Claudine Gay. Now, there are 2,500 faculty members at Harvard, and they're going to represent a bell curve from the, the worst faculty member to the best. Best would be Harvey Mansfield. And you're going to find... 10% 10% of them at the left edge of the bell curve, politically and talent-wise, two different curves, but those 10% are going to put up their hands. So that's uh, 250 people each. The least 10, uh, the, the least effective teachers, there are 250 out of them out of 2,500, they're all going to sign the letter. And the most ideologically left-wing, 250 of them are all going to sign the letter. The other people are just going to say, I want no part of this meltdown. I don't. But the Harvard Corporation and the Harvard Board of Trustees has to serve a lot of groups. I'm one of them. I'm an alum. But there are lots of alum. There are also parents. Mine are dead, but other people who paid checks for the kids to go to college, they're in a a constituency. Uh, Donors are a constituency, foundations, endowments, individual donors. The federal government is a constituency. They give $600 million more a year to Harvard. They got a lot, and their reputation is in tatters. They become an ideological freezer of left-wing nuttery. They're off the rails. So the corporation, the board of trustees, has to decide whether or not they want to rebuild their reputation, their actual excellence that used to be there, or not. It's up to them. If they're cowardly, they won't do it. The first virtue is courage because it's the virtue upon which all of the virtues depend. And if the Harvard Corporation, the board of overseers have courage, they will fire President Gay and they will hire an interim president. I suggest Hillary Clinton. She's got to be acceptable to everyone, right? She ran the Department of State. She's tough. She's right on Israel. She hell on wheels on anti-Semitism. And then you get together a select committee to do the internal investigation of what's wrong at Harvard and to select the new president. I suggest former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, Harvard Law grad, number one in his class at what point? West Point to run that committee. And there are a bunch of good people. I mentioned Regina Marie Pisa, who I've known for 40 years. She's like the first lady of Boston and uh, just a fabulous lawyer, chairman emeritus of Brooks Gray, one of the big three law firms up there, run every charity, done everything for everybody in the town, put them on the. I mean, there are a lot of people that can run that committee to to save the place, but it's falling into the the left crevice. That's and, and MIT already 
went for the subway and said, we're buckling down with our president. But nobody really cares about MIT. It's all math and science geeks anyway. They don't produce any people besides Johnson and who run anything. Uh, Johnson and I you ought to get on your alma mater's case because it's screwed up, too. But that's not that's not a great interest to you. Here's what ought to be a great interest to you. U.S. is seeking partners to safeguard ships after Red Sea attacks. Can you believe that? Our Navy can't do it alone. We need help. That comes along with a national interest story. That's from the, um, the story on the U.S. Navy is from the Washington Post. They need help. The U.S. Air Force is in serious decline. That's from the national interest. Isn't that great? That's why I want you to listen to Ron DeSantis. Now, I'm Switzerland. All right, I'm Switzerland. I'm not picking Ron DeSantis. I'm not picking Nikki Haley, Chris Christie, or Donald Trump. But Ron DeSantis said something in Iowa this weekend that every single Republican should say and adopt as their own platform. He's talking to the Iowa version of Meet the Press, cut number 15. Yeah, we, we, we want to make those rates permanent. Uh, I think having taxes go up right now would be, would be a disaster. We're looking, you know, a year from now or 13 months from now, uh, you know, we could be in a, in a, in a recession. You know, people talk about a soft landing. Uh, I think we've got to prepare for a hard landing. I think there have been a lot of things that have been done in the economy that, uh, that, that you can see a significant crash. I mean, I hope I'm wrong, but you're going in on January 20th, 2025, uh, and, and it is probably not going to be all sunshine and roses. So raising taxes in that situation I think would be, be a big mistake. So we're already thinking about in a reconciliation package with the only, would only need 50 votes in the Senate, you have – the tax rates we want to do, uh, you have uh, repealing Biden's, a lot of Biden's stuff that, that obviously is very expensive that we would do as much as, as, much as we could get through there. Uh, I would also want to do national school choice in that package, which honestly would not cost that much money. Uh, I think that it's important that all parents have a right, particularly poor and working class parents, send their kid to the school of choice. And we'll probably do our multi-year naval buildup through that reconciliation vehicle. So everything I do when I say, hey, we want to do this, we want to do this, I'm thinking of an eye of how do you actually get it done? Uh, I don't make promises if I haven't thought about how I'm going to do it. Now, I do believe with me as the nominee, we'll expand our Republican majorities in the U.S. House and we'll be able to re recapture the U.S. Senate and hopefully with, with a little bit of cushion. Not going to be able to get 60 votes. You know, we could have gotten 60 had we not fumbled. What I through. wanted you to hear were the three elements of a reconciliation package. Extend the tax cuts, make school choice a mandatory offering in every state via the spending clause, and rebuild the Navy. Every Republican candidate for president should say the same thing about reconciliation. Stay tuned on Hugh Hewitt. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. I, I had a chuckle this morning. Mark Thiessen is a, my friend and colleague at the Washington Post. And I've known Mark for a long time. We actually go to Mass together. We see each other at Mass occasionally. And uh, Mark and I always chuckle and chat a little bit. But I, I don't see him much outside of church and on the occasional very rare Zoom call, because the columnists just live in columnist land. We, we think up our own stuff and send our own stuff in. And uh, Mark's a pretty smart guy, was a W speechwriter, and a very, very solid guy. Went to Vassar. So he didn't know much about Harvard, though, because this morning, Ben Idelson, a Harvard Law School professor, said, quote, I'm so dismayed by Penn President Liz McGill's resignation. I so hope that Claudine Gay... Harvard will not follow her. I fear too few of us have said what many of us think. She did nothing wrong, and the real failure of leadership would be surrendering to a campaign so hostile to our values. Our values. 
that is so arrogant and so left wing that I don't need to comment on it. But of course, I can count the number of Harvard conservatives on one hand. And at the law school, I don't know of any. Don't tell me Charles Freedy's not a conservative. And he's not really in the prime, if he's alive. I don't know that he's still alive. He'd be like 90. Harvey Mansfield's still alive and kicking, and he's on the faculty. Even Harvey's on my hand, one of my five. But they're just, I went up there in June, and it's so far off the rails. It's, as I just posted on Twitter, it's in the There Be Dragons land on the left side of the map. Whatever your map is of academia, Harvard is that far left. So Mark writes about the law professor, this encapsulates in a nutshell the liberal echo chamber Harvard has become. You all talk among yourselves and nod in agreement, then enter the real world briefly and then can't understand why everyone else is outraged. If you're accusing the Biden administration of using Trumpian tactics, you are really in need of some self-reflection. They don't do that much in Cambridge. Harvard scored dead last in the country for free speech, but now suddenly you're free speech absolutist when it comes to anti-Semitic speech. It's laughable. Mark, it's not laughable. It's just diagnostic. They are so deep in the blue bubble. It's a blue bubble within a blue bubble within a blue bubble. And I don't know if the corporation and the board of trustees, overseers, can actually break out of it. They should. Don't know that they can. Higher education is lost to us. Us being America. It's so far off the map, ideologically, that when you send your kids there, don't expect them to come back anything like they were. Unless you're going to send them to Hillsdale or Colorado Christian University or Grove City or Biola. There are a handful of, of colleges and universities. One great one, Hillsdale. One great one with the same network effects. And a lot of people still send their kids to Harvard and Yale because they want the network effects. They don't care that lunatics are running the classroom. And by the way, to go to Harvard Law School doesn't mean anything except you had good LSATs and you got past the bar. It doesn't mean you're going to be a good lawyer. I don't know about the medical school. They really can't turn out people that can't do medicine or they'll kill people. But business school, they're pretty serious over there. Although the business school professor I saw was just a China pawn. The law professor I saw was just a China pawn. CCP owned and operated fully functional CCP plant. In fact, one of the three people at my reunion said, can we turn off all the devices in here, please? So much for free speech. They didn't want the CCP to hear any discussion of the CCP. Harvard is completely infected. And I am not speaking about any other place because I don't know any other place. But Harvard is broken. And I suspect the same. But over the weekend, the footage of Hamas's atrocities was screened at Harvard University. National Review reported that the Israeli official 43-minute version was expanded and made even tougher and screened for the delicate eyes at Harvard. Not sure that the professors who signed this letter or President Gay went to see it. Not sure the Crimson editors of the student newspaper went to see it. We did have the Wall Street Journal running, I think, about 3,000 words on Yaha Sinwar, the nut, the crazy man, the fanatic who launched the massacre that is destroying Gaza. And it's a, I don't, it's not sympathetic. It attempts to figure out why he's a psychotic, and there is no figuring out why someone's a psychotic. The Shin Bet nabbed the former head of comms for Hamas during this thing, and 
He did a debrief. He said, everybody hates Sinwar. He's crazy and everybody knows it and he's destroying Gaza. Everybody knows that. Meanwhile, Israel has identified Hezbollah's Ibrahim Akil as the head of the deadly Radwan unit. This is from the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies. Radwan is like the Quds Force, only from Lebanon. And up there on the border, they're gathering. And Israel's going to act preemptively. They're going to go full 1967. They're not going to wait for Hezbollah to get their missiles out of the barn and out from the cellar. And the National Security Advisor said that unless they retreat, we're going to take care of them next. While we're fully mobilized, while everyone's, everyone's evacuated, we're going to take care of them next. Because our citizens are not going to live under the cloud, under the threat of another massacre. So the big news today, Israel is winning in Gaza rather thoroughly and rather quickly. The cost is over 100 IDF soldiers dead and 1,200 massacred. Not soldiers, but the massacre victims of 10-7, of whom about 300 were IDF soldiers. So the cost in the IDF is 400, and that's a large, large cost. Israel is weeping, and they are, they are making it right. They're going to destroy Hamas, and then they're going to figure out a Marshall Plan for Gaza, but they got to get some of the Sunni Arab states to take part in that. And the PLA is not going to run it. Tony Blinken, just wake up. You guys are so far behind the curve. You are just not even clued in to what happened on 10-7 and the consequence. Go listen to Aviv Reddick today with Dan Senor. And, of course, liberal elite media is casting the revolt against the elites on campus as conservatives seize the moment. That's really a Nick Confessori article in the New York Times' headline, as fury erupts over campus anti-Semitism, conservatives seize the moment. You remember, if you listen to my show, I was saying the same thing in June when I came back thunderstruck from the Harvard reunion about how off the rail. I wasn't seizing any moment. It's just objectively true. They're nuts. They're left-wing, hiring the left-wing, which hires the further left-wing, and then encapsulates it in a DEI bureaucracy and fires everyone who doesn't go full 1984 with them. And Penn figured it out. They got to change. There's a financial time, Ivy League, Wall Street donors, and the fear over anti-Semitism on campus. Meanwhile, Joe Biden, not speaking about anti-Semitism on campus, not standing by Israel. He's in Hollywood raising money. Got out there, got a nap, showed up for 30 minutes, picked up the money and left. I got to tell you, I'm Hugh Hewitt. It's a hard season for news. The death toll in the Israeli Defense Forces and the destruction of the large swaths of Gaza in the relentless pursuit of the Hamas terrorists who committed the massacre of 10-7 is an important story, and I bring you the latest. But when the National Security Advisor of Israel announces on Saturday that Hezbollah has got to move back or they will be destroyed. That's the quick version. Then you know the war isn't even close to being over. When the United States Navy is putting out SOS calls for help to deal with the Houthis, that means we're in a real regional war situation. And you know who's behind it all? You know who is? Iran. And who are Iran's buddies? China and Russia. This is clarifying, very clarifying moment. So where do you go for clarity? Me, of course, and if you miss me any day, you can listen to my podcast every day. Highly concentrated Hugh. And if you want to listen to my political podcast on the campaign and the Republican Party, the grand old pod is behind the paywall at the universe. But highly concentrated Hugh is free. So go and subscribe to that. Lots of you do. You only want to listen to 30 or 45 minutes. I get that. 
I get that. You want to work out or you have a commute and one senator only listens to the podcast. They told me that they don't have time for my Browns talk or my other stuff. They just want what we reduced the show down. Now, a radio show is about 120 minutes of airtime in the course of three hours. And a podcast when Harley is awake is between 40 and 60. So we're leaving a lot on the cutting room floor, but we put the best stuff into it. Go and get it. Subscribe to Highly Concentrated Hue at iTunes. Give it a five-star rating. Leave your comments. But I have an admission against interest. Not the best podcast out there. It's in the top three, but it's not the best. The single best podcast in America is the Commentary Podcast. Now, I came upon this fairly recently because I subscribe to a lot of things, and, you know, the budget is the budget is the budget. Fetching Mrs. Hewitt always says to me, because she is the vice president of accounting because I can't balance a checkbook. So what in the world did you subscribe to this time? And I, well, look, it's the... Financial Times, The Telegraph, The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, The Washington Post. I have to read those things every day. So what is this subscription over here for commentary? I said, well, you know, I in this season of the news, I just had to go back because they're putting out the best stuff. And Seth Mandel is posting like a thousand things a day. And John Podhoritz is running the podcast. And Matt Continenti and the other two people. There, there are five people on this podcast. And it is the world's worst bumper music. Can you go and grab that, Dwayne? Just go listen to any commentary podcast, because I don't know what it is, and I don't know why they use it. You're talking about, you're talking about like a theme song? Yeah, they start every podcast with the same thing. Prepare for the worst, hope for the best. And I don't know what it's from, and it's terrible. There are two things wrong with the best podcast in America. The first is the terrible bump music, except I remember it. We don't need to see your head. Um the, the, the bump music is terrible, but I remember it, so maybe it's actually pretty smart. And then the second thing is, J-Pod, John Podhoritz, is the leader of the band, but he doesn't identify whether he's talking to Matt or, or Seth or Abe. Christine, I know, because he's the only woman on there. I know J-Pod's voice, but I don't know the other three well enough. I kind of get Matt's now, but between Seth and Abe, it's a little bit hard for me. So you guys say, hey, what do you say, Matt? He does it occasionally. Come on, John, raise the game. Get the game up. The content is five stars, but my gosh, the, the so, opening so music. So you are complaining about their formatics? Yes. I see. Okay. I see. Uh, would you pl- have you found the have you found the intro song yet? You'll know why when you hear the intro song. Because when you hear the intro sign, you'll say, what in the world is that? We'll, we'll have it in a second. It's behind a right. paywall. We're having tell me, to get tell it. Tell me when you get it, and, and, uh, and I'll send it to you. Now, I want you to know that although Israel's making great progress and the IDF is killing Hamas people or taking their surrenders left, right, and center, it's brutal, it's ugly, and Gaza is in ruins. And they had no choice. You can't leave a gang of barbarians who rape and murder and torture your people by the hundreds and over a thousand. You can't let them go back to their tunnels and plot. I think everybody understands that. And since their strategy is to inflict casualties on the Gazan civilians, casualties are mounting on the Gazan civilians. 
but I played for you the other must-listen-to podcast, three minutes of it, Dan Senor's Call Me Back. Every Monday, he talks to Aviv Redegur from Israel. And Aviv laid out the three seasons of this campaign. We're in season one right now, phase one. They've got to destroy them all. They got to get Sinwar. They got to kill everyone. They got to kill everyone who's abroad, too. Everyone who planned that attack is going to be dead or in prison. Then they got to blow up the subway. They got to fill it with sand, cement. Uh, just, it, it's got to be the upside down version of Carthage when the Romans were done with it. And if you don't get that, you went to Harvard and you learned critical race theory, but you didn't learn any history. The upside-down version of Carthage after the Romans mean they made a desert and they called it peace. Now, they can't do that above ground in Gaza. Gaza's going to need a Marshall Plan. It's going to need what Japan got from MacArthur and what Germany, West Germany, got from the Allies. Not what East Germany got from the Russians, but what West Germany got from the Allies. Rebuild. They're going to need a Marshall Plan. And they're going to need someone to administer it that is not an Israeli. Or an American. They're going to need some UAE folks, some Bahraini folks, some Saudi folks, some Sudanese folks. Not really a lot of them, but the Moroccans are pretty good. They got a lot of talent in the Sunni Arab nations, and they're not crazy. They want Gaza to be the Riviera. And they want Lebanon to be back the way it was in the 50s and the 60s before the PLO went there after Jordan threw out the PLO, destroyed Lebanon and started a civil war. They want it back to being the Paris of the Middle East. And it can all be that way. It's, it's the Mediterranean, for goodness sake, build some hotels. It's just not that hard in the 21st century to take the most beautiful coastline in the world. If you're not a fanatic, could you find the commentary song? All right, let's play. This is the opening to the commentary podcast every day. Every day. What's wrong with that? What is it? It's a song from a 1970 Mel Brooks movie called The Twelve Chairs, which was a great movie. How do you know that? Because I happen to like Mel Brooks because I'm an American. Well, I <laughs> what? I've never heard of The Twelve Chairs. What is The Twelve Chairs about? Is it about my PhD, weightloss.com? No, no, no. If... if <laughs> you may need 12 chairs, and if so, you may need uh, my PhD There, that's called a transition. Yes, that's called I can formatics. do it way, too, yes. You know, and I, the reason I did that is because J-Pod has a sponsor. If you want uh, 10 Babel. chairs instead of 12. No, no wait, you, wait. We'll come back to the sponsor. Yes. The transition that J-Pod does is they're in the middle of a fascinating conversation. Oh, wait, i got to talk about Babel. And it's, it's like there's no transition at all. But it's hilarious because it's a bad transition. Dom DeLuise was, was in this. It, it, was a, it was a Mel Brooks movie. It was like, you know, three, four years before Blazing Saddles. I think it was after The Producers. It was around 1970. But it's, it's, a, it's a Mel Brooks movie. Well, the transition is what I want to focus on because Jay Pot will probably hear this. We're going to put this into my podcast today. The transition is when you work in a sponsor by reference obliquely and your colleagues 
throw out 12 chairs, and I say, is that a MyPhDWeightLoss.com transition? He said, well, if you need 12 chairs, you might yes. get down to 10 chairs, you right? You can be like me. In, in 12 weeks, you can be down to six chairs. <laughs> MyPhDWeightLoss.com is our babble. John Podhortz's sponsor is Babbel, but our sponsor is MyPhDWeightLoss.com because Dwayne lost 50 pounds and kept it off for a year. 864-644-1900. That's 864-644-1900. Or one more time. That would be 864-644-1900. And the reason I do that is because my other podcast, the Cleveland Browns and Ohio State Buckeyes podcast, they give the number once so fast that no one can remember it. It's just, formatics are not hard, right? Again, you're the one that's talking about formatics is not hard? I always say my guest's name 15 times, and I always say the title of the book seven times. Uh, Come right back. That is from the brilliant Mel Brooks movie, 12 Chairs, which I highly recommend. Welcome back. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Uh, you got to laugh when it's this serious. Uh, everything in the world is truly on edge. And you got to laugh when it's this serious. I was just during the break discussing with Janelissimo the death of Stalin movie with Steve Buscemi, who is the absolute. He needs to be in only murders in the building. I don't know how they get him. I hope he gets along with with Steve Martin and the other guy, um, because Martin Short, because they would be, he's just, there are great actors. I don't think they can get Robert Duvall. I don't think Robert Duvall is doing anything anymore, but he ought to be in Only Murders in the Building, too. Only Murders in the Building is for guys who are 30 years older than me, and that's fine. I like watching that TV. And gals. It's a, it's great stuff. Um who did they have in the last season married? Uh, Warren Beatty's sister. Help me out here, Dwayne. Shirley McLean. And Shirley McLean was in it last season, and they had Sting. And it's, it's, it's fun to see the people who can't really move around very much anymore acting in small places. But we need some laughs. Sting's out on this. tour still. What are you talking about? I mean, he doesn't dance like Mick Jagger. Only You know, Mick Jagger's going to Israel, so we like Mick Jagger. So I'm not going to bag on Mick Jagger. But I'm going to tell the rest of you, in dark times, you do have to laugh. It doesn't have to be black humor, but you can find funny things to watch. Or you can watch the Browns and lose years off your life, as I did yesterday. And I'll tell you, Joe Flacco, thank you for coming to Cleveland. A competent quarterback. Now, we haven't had a lot of those. I like Baker Mayfield a lot, and he's being very competent in Tampa Bay. But we haven't had a lot of competent games from – just competent. Not fabulous. Joe Flacco threw two interceptions. But it, it's just competent. You know, he's been there, but 38 years old. They got him off of a couch when DTR went down after Deshaun Watson went down. And the third stringer, Mr. Watkins, is definitely a third stringer. He can do like a, a series if you need him if someone – Pulls a muscle and they got to work it out or tape an ankle. But Joe Flacco is the real deal. And he's beaten the Browns so often he ought to be in jail. He has beaten the Browns 18 times. 18, really? He's that, that mean to the Browns. I think he may have beaten them 18 times at Cleveland First Energy Stadium. Let me see, 1999. 
I've had the tickets for 24 years. I've never gone. I tell this story every now and then, but I've got new listeners and new new affiliates. I bought four season tickets to the Browns after they came back, after their exile because of the man who cannot be named, took them away from Cleveland for three years. And so my dad wasn't going to buy his season tickets against. He was still mad at the man who could not be named. So he's still alive. And I bought the tickets for him and my brother would go with him. And then I kept them. But I always told my brother who wrote it down, I'm not going until it's a home playoff game. That was in 1999. I think that's stenciled on a wall somewhere. Hugh's not coming until it's a home playoff game. They've never had a home playoff game since 1999. I think they've had a total of three playoff games, and they were all played away since 1999. They beat the Steelers in Pittsburgh. They, they lost to the Chiefs because of terrible refereeing in Kansas City. And the third playoff game was, another, was a loss to the Steelers, I believe. But never at home, so I've never been. My boys go, my nephews go, my brother goes. Shirt tail relatives that I know and like go. Charity auctions. But looks like I may have to fly in January to Cleveland because the, uh, the Cleveland Browns are in the 8-5 uh, and five number one pole position for the wild, wild card, card which... round home game. And I am going. If they get it. Now, the program director, the big boss of all the voice talent at Radio Salem is Phil Boyce. And Phil is a Denver Broncos fan. No way, Phil. You're doomed. But my Browns are going. And I think everybody else in Salem roots for somebody else. Nobody roots for the Browns except Condi Rice and me. Um, there are actually a lot of Browns fans everywhere. You can find them in every city. They are indestructible. We will be around after the apocalypse. And we will expect the Cleveland Browns to take the field. We I, are not going anywhere. I think the word you're looking for is insufferable. No, we are, in, we are indestructible. We are not insufferable. We are simply absolutely committed. And we know we're going to turn it around this year. Eight and five. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never before seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com. 